Good evening. Um, For today's Bible reading, we'll be opening to Luke 15, and we'll be reading from verses 11 to 32. That's Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. However, just before we do that, we'll read verses 1 and 2, and then read the passage itself. So verses 1 and 2 of Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. And now going down to verse 11. And he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have fain filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, And no man gave unto him. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to his servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead, and is alive again. He was lost, and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his eldest son was in the field. As he came and drew nigh to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants, and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry, and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and entreated him. And he answering said to his father, Lo, these many years I do serve thee, neither transgressed I at any time your command. And yet thou never gavest me a kid that I, may make, that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son, as soon as this thy son was come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. And he said unto him, Son, Thou art ever with me, and all that is, all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. Father, as I am um, studying your word, as I am opening it and explaining it, Lord, be with me. Allow me to say only what you want me to say, nothing more than that and nothing less than that. In your son's precious name I pray these things. Amen. 
The parable, this parable that we've just read is famously known as the parable of the prodigal son. And I think that um, the title somewhat does injustice to the story because there are um, not one, there's not one lost son, there are two. And, um, and so to address that, I'll be calling it the parable of the two lost sons and I'll be splitting it into two sections. The first I'll be calling Act 1 from verses 11 to 24, which deals with the younger son. And then Act 2, which deals with the older son in verses 25 to 32. In modern, um, in modern tellings of the story or um, recent messages, we hear a primary emphasis being placed on the younger son in Act 1, who squandered his share of the inheritance on degenerate living. And we hear much about um, the graciousness of the father towards him in, in um, allowing his request to actually be fulfilled, um, to the great diminishment of his own estate, um, as we see in verse 12. We see um, what the implications of this request were. Um, he was effectively wishing that his father was dead, because otherwise he would not ask of his inheritance. Um, Mr. Vine did a wonderful expository on this last week, and I would encourage you to look into that if you're more interested on hearing, um, especially on what the significance of both the father's actions were towards the younger son, as well as the younger son's actions towards the father. However, I believe that Jesus did not give us the story for us to primarily gain insights from the first act, but I think there is much to be gained from the second act, which I think is often underdeveloped. And so, um, let's dive in today with a particular emphasis on the second half of the story. While Act 1 shows us the freeness of God's grace, I believe that Act 2 shows us the costliness of that grace and the true climax of the story. But first, let's observe a few things. In verse 28, it reads that the older brother was angry and refused to go into the feast. The feast that his father had thrown was likely the family's, if not the village's, biggest event of the year, if not of the decade. In choosing to remain outside... The elder brother not only scorns the event, but he publicly casts a vote of non-confidence in his father's choice. This action forces the father to leave the feast and to come and speak to his older son, a demeaning thing to do as both the host of the house and the lord of the house. But why is the brother so furious? It is because in the eyes of the older brother, there is no justice being received. The cost of reconciliation is too high as we see in verses 29 and 30 in his response. He says, You never gave me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fattened calf for him. But this is more than the elder brother just being shocked at the apparent injustice of the black sheep being brought back in despite what he's done. More than the monetary cost of the calf, the elder brother is rebelling at what this party represents. It represents the younger brother being brought back into the family, a reinstation as an heir, and therefore to the vast diminishing of his own wealth. Not only that, but by implication of what he says in 29 and 30, he's, we see that the older brother believes that he has a right in how the family and the wealth of the family is to be managed because of his moral standing. Here, the older brother res refers to his record. I have never disobeyed you, he says, so I have rights. I deserve to be consulted about this. You have no rights 
you have no standing to make these decisions unilaterally. And so he lashes out and insults the father as much as he can. In verse 29, at the very opening, he says, he addresses the father as, look, in ancient, in ancient Israeli culture, um, younger people had to address their aged elders in an elaborately respectful way, especially in public contexts. He does not say, highly esteemed and honorable father, but he effectively says, look, you. He, in a modern context, we often miss the weight of this single word, but in a culture that deeply valued deference and respect for their elders, this was outrageous behavior. And so we turn to the father. How will he respond to an insult to his person equal to what the younger son did in demanding his share of the estate? All the way back in verse 12. With incredible grace and patience, the father speaks. My son, he says, despite how you've insulted me publicly, I still want you to be in my feast. I'm not going to discern your younger brother who left me but has come back. But I don't want to discern you either. I want you, I challenge you to swallow your pride and come into the feast. The choice is yours, he asks. Will you or will you not? It is an unexpectedly gracious and dramatic appeal he makes. And we are left on the edge of our seats, waiting for a resolution to act to, where the elder brother enters into the grace of the father, just as the younger brother did. Do we see a reunited, a restored family? Does Jesus give us a happy ending? No. The story closes with the invitation to the older brother, with the older brother still estranged from the father outside of the feast. Why? Because although we see tax collectors and more conventional sinners listening to Jesus in verses 1 and 2, they are not the intended recipients of this message because they freely come to Jesus. The target audience of this particular parable are the Pharisees, who grumble at Jesus' acceptance of such sinners. And in giving us this parable, our Lord provides us a rich insight into the nature of sin and repentance and implicitly points to himself. So what do we learn from the characters of this parable? Well, I'll first give a brief overview. The two brothers represent two common parts of sin that we see in the world around us and what drives those two parts of sin. In Act 1, the younger brother wants the possessions of the father without the relationship of the father himself. And so he makes a bold power play of demanding it from dad in complete defiance of familial bonds or communal expectations. In doing so, the younger brother takes the path of self-discovery. I will do things my own way, he says. I live life on my own terms. I will be whatever or whoever I want to be. And while this path was uncommon in Jesus' time, we see many more people today who choose this path, although rarely to the same extent as the younger brother. He chooses the recognizable and conventional path of sin, of total rebellion of any moral authority. The young man humiliates his family and lives a self-indulgent, dissolute life. He is totally out of control. And in choosing the path of self-discovery, He's alienated from the father who represents God in this parable. Anyone who lives like that, anyone who does what the younger brother did, would be cut off from God, as all the listeners in the parable, as all the listeners to the parable would have agreed. But if we turn to Act 2, we see vastly different choices taken by the elder brother. Here, 
we see a brother who chooses the path of moral conformity in stark contrast to his younger brother. He's the good kid. Today, he'd be the one who worked in the family business all his life, who married the girl down the street and stayed home to take care of mom and dad in their old age. He's a good, respectable person, a family man, if you will. By any standards, he is not the sinner, the one who has done anything wrong. But if we think about his motivations, what prompted his massive outburst, we soon see that he had the same motivations as the younger brother. He, just like his brother, did not care truly about his relationship with his father. Otherwise, he would have never had an outburst like he did. At the, at, um, at the end of the story, he has a real opportunity to truly delight his father by going into the feast, but his refusal to do so shows that his father's happiness has never been his true goal. When the father reinstates the younger son to the diminishment of the, young, of the oldest son's share in the estate, the elder brother's heart is laid bare. He does everything he can to hurt and resist his father's will. We see that he's never been interested in delighting his father. And so he chose the path of moral conformity to receive the possessions of the father without the relationship with his father himself. That was his way of getting control. His unspoken demand was, I have never disobeyed you. Now you have to do things the way I want them to be done. And so while both brothers have the same end goal of having the possessions of the father without the relationship of the father, Act 1 and Act 2 have very different endings. While the younger brother is welcomed into the feast with lavish grace, Jesus intentionally stops the parable just before the elder brother enters into the feast, leaving the son in his alienation. You can almost feel the shock of those who are listening to Jesus. The brother who squandered everything enters into the feast, but the good brother, the one who is morally upright, does not. Horror of horrors. However, Jesus goes further than leaving the elder brother in his alienation. He gives a reason why the elder brother refuses to go in. It is because of his moral standing, it is because of his hard work over the years, that the brother refuses to go into the feast. It is not his wrongdoing, but it is his righteousness that leaves him outside. It is the pride that the elder brother has in his track record that prevents him from entering into the joy of his father, into the feast of his family. He believes that because of his moral standing, because of all the things he's done, he has a right in saying how the household should be run. Jesus is making a shocking point. The good things we do can be the very things that stop us from coming to God. Why? Because sin is not just breaking the rules and doing things your own way, although sin includes that. Sin is putting yourself in the place of God as your Savior, Lord, and Judge, just as each son sought to displace the authority of their father in his own life, be it via the path of self-discovery or moral conformity. We all, to one extent or another, have chosen some variation of these two paths. We may have chosen to live life on our own terms or even try to obey moral standards. But if we do not have the relationship of the Father as our primary desire and focus, we are just as lost as both brothers were. And so how do we enter into the feast? How are we, in the language of Christians, to be saved? What do we need to escape either our path of alienation and lostness from our Father? 
be it the path of self-discovery or moral conformity. First, we see that it takes God's initiating love. In this parable, we see the father intentionally goes out and expresses his love towards both sons. For the younger brother, dad runs out of the village to bring him home. For the elder brother, dad leaves the feast to appeal to him. We will never enter the feast, we will never be saved until God initiates and comes to us. And for some like the elder, for some like the younger brother, there may be a clear sense of his overwhelming love for us. While for others, like the elder brother, God may patiently and gently appeal to our hearts. How can you tell if he is working on you now? If you begin to sense your lostness and find yourself wanting to escape it, you should realize that that desire is not something you could have generated on your own. Such a process requires help. And if it is happening, it is a good indication he is with you right now. Second, we need to turn away from sin and actions Christians call repentance. We learn that repentance is much deeper than admitting we have done bad things because sin is much deeper than doing bad things. A definition that only includes doing bad things doesn't cover the older brother because in the story he is morally faultless but still ends up estranged from the father. Jesus is teaching us that sin is putting yourself in the place of God as your savior, Lord, and judge, just as each son sought to displace the authority of the father in their own life. And so you need to recognize that any attempt, in the words of the poet, to be the masters of our fate, the captain of our souls, be it through bad deeds or good works, is sin. It is only when we see the desire to be our own savior and Lord underlying our sin and our so-called moral goodness that we are on the verge of understanding the gospel and becoming a Christian. But there is a third thing that one needs to enter this festival joy of salvation. If we turn to the entirety of Luke 15, we see there are three stories about lost things. The first story in verses 4 to 7 is called the parable of the lost sheep, where a man has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Instead of cutting his losses, he thoroughly searches for the one lost sheep until he finds it. And then he calls his friends in verse 6 to rejoice with me, for I have found my lost sheep. We see a sheep lost, then found, then rejoiced over. The second story in verses 8 to 10 is called the parable of the lost coin, where a woman has 10 silver coins and loses just one of them. Instead of cutting her losses, she thoroughly searches for the one lost coin until she finds it and then calls her friend to rejoice with me for I found my lost coin. We see a coin lost, then found, then rejoiced over. And we have been studying the parable of the two lost sons. Across the three parables, Jesus says back to back, the parallels are obvious across the three. Something is lost, whether it's a sheep, a coin, or a son. In each parable, the, son, the, thing, the one who loses the thing gets it back. And to close each story, there is a scene of rejoicing and celebration when the lost thing is found. However, there is one striking difference that separates the first two parables and the last parable. In the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, there is someone who actively and diligently searches for the lost thing. The searcher does not get distracted in their search and they do not stop until they find it. 
By the time we reach the third story, we are being set up by Jesus as a parable teller to expect the same thing in the third story. But no, there is no such searcher. The difference is jarring, and Jesus meant it to be so. By placing the three parables together, back to back, mind you, he is inviting listeners to ask, well, who should have gone out and searched for the younger son? Jesus knew his Bible thoroughly, and he knew that in the very beginning of the Bible, there is another story of an elder and a younger brother, Cain and Abel. And in that story, God tells the resentful and proud older brother, you, you are your brother's keeper. War records tell us the story of a, uh, tell us the story of a young man who was a U.S. soldier missing in action during the Vietnam War. When the family could get no word of the lost son through any official channel, the older brother flew to Vietnam and, risking his life, searched the jungles and the battlefields for his lost brother. It's said that despite the danger, he was never injured, simply because both sides had heard of his story and dedicated um, dedication to his quest, and he was called simply the brother. This is what the elder brother in the parable should have done, what a true elder brother would have done. He should have said to the father, Dad, my brother has ruined his life and he is in shambles, but I will go and look for him and I am willing to bring him back into the family at my own personal expense. For it was only at the expense of the elder brother that the younger brother could have been welcomed home. Remember, the younger brother had already received his share of the inheritance and so that meant that everything that was left, everything that belonged to the father, did in reality belong to the older brother. It was his inheritance to do with as he pleased. When the father tells the older brother, everything I have is yours, he's telling the truth. Every penny, every robe, every ring, every fatted calf is the older brother's birthright, his property. Unfortunately, in this parable, the younger brother is brought back against the will of the elder brother to the diminishment of the elder brother's estate. But by putting such a flawed and broken elder brother in his final parable, Jesus is inviting us to imagine and long for a true, a better, a perfect older brother who would willingly give everything up to bring us back into God's family. Think of that. We are more lost than either brother was. We need a brother who will not just go to another country, but come down from heaven to earth to bring us home. We need a true elder brother who will not just give up his financial holdings for us, but at the infinite cost of his own life, bring us back into God's family. As flawed, younger, or elder brothers ourselves who have chosen the path of self-discovery or moral conformity, we have rebelled and sinned against God the Father and trying to put ourselves as the Lord and Savior of our own lives just as each son in this parable sought to displace the authority of their father in their life. We deserve the alienation and rejection that comes with that choice. However, Jesus, the true and the better elder brother, has paid for our entry back into the family at great personal expense to himself on the cross. On the cross, Jesus was stripped naked of a robe and his dignity so that we could be clothed with righteousness and standing before God that we don't deserve. 
On the cross, Jesus was treated as an outcast so that we could be welcomed back into the family of God by grace. And on the cross, Jesus drank the cup of God's justice so that we could drink a cup of God's rejoicing at his table. There was no way the Heavenly Father could have, bring, could have brought us back into the family except at the expense of the older brother, the true older brother. Truly seeing what Jesus went through on the cross and truly seeing what Jesus' sacrifice has done on our behalf will cure us of both our bad deeds and our good works. Seeing selfless love destroys the desire for self-rule that makes us either younger brothers or older brothers. John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, put another hymn um, that wrote this perfectly. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposites before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. In a few short words, Newton outlines our dilemma. The choice seems to be either follow the desires of our own heart, like the younger brother, or to repress desire and to do our moral duty, like the older brother. But the sacrificial and costly love of Jesus changes that. When we see the beauty of what he has done for us, it attracts our hearts to him. We see a true, a better, older brother who has done everything possible to bring us back into the family, who has done everything he possibly could to bring us into the festal joy of salvation. We see the love, the greatness, the consolation, and the honor that we have been seeking in other things is here, in him. And to the degree that we see his beauty is the degree that we will be free from the impulses of self-discovery or moral conformity that creates either younger brothers or elder brothers. So what then must we do to be saved, to enter this feast of joy? To find God, we must repent and turn away of the things that we have done wrong, but we should not stop there. At the risk of repeating myself, let me repeat myself. To truly become Christians, we must repent of all the things we have done wrong, but also all of the reasons we've ever done anything right. We are not only to repent and turn away from the bad things we do, but repent of the very good things we have done as well. God has shown us his initiating love by coming out to us, demonstrated ultimately by Jesus' death on the cross. All we need to do is to accept his death on our behalf, and we are promised to enter the joy of salvation today for the rest of our lives and forever. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for showing us your word and in doing so revealing to us um, Jesus Christ, the true and better older brother who has come down from heaven to save us, to bring us back into the family at great personal cost to himself. We thank you for such love. And Lord, we ask that you, ins- we, that you transform our hearts to become more like you, to be conformed in some way to the image of your son. In your son's precious name, we ask these things. Amen.